Thank you for uh, being here tonight and being willing to uh, sit through another sermon. Uh, but this, I hope it will bless your heart. Let me just let you know by way of review here, and I want to do a little bit of review. So if you're here this morning, if you would just bear with me for a little bit, because uh, I think it sets up what we're doing really well to just remind us uh, why we're talking about the family once again tonight. Um, real quick, the reason we titled it Heaven's Kitchen is a play off of Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Hell's Kitchen, originally the terminology came from uh, a, uh, a neighborhood in New York City back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There was a dangerous culture in that neighborhood, and somebody coined the phrase, it's like Hell's Kitchen in there. And... Um, and so that was their culture. Today, if you say Hell's Kitchen, almost everybody's probably going to immediately think of the TV show. And uh, this chef does uh, all he can to create a culture that's uh, not unlike maybe that neighborhood in New York City. I don't know. But it's the my way or the highway kind of mentality. And he, again, I don't recommend watching it. It's not a show uh, we'd recommend. But he, profanity-laced, and he just gets people to see things his way, and if you do, the, do it his way, you're going to be a successful chef. So he's created a culture of his own there, but it's not a good one for our families. It's not a good one for, our, for real life. It's good for entertainment purposes, maybe, and making some money uh, in this world, but that's about it. <clears throat> Taking that concept and that idea and saying, well, we need, in our homes, Heaven's Kitchen. I want a culture that's defined by God, defined by heaven, um, a culture that's still my unique personality, our unique personality as a family, but that has been transformed by Jesus Christ and is conformed to the Word of God, a home life that is we're getting our direction from God, from heaven. Again, and one of the phrases that I use this morning quite often, and I wanted to use it again tonight, and that is, we're not talking about uniformity. I'm not, we're not talking about every family looking exactly the same and doing exactly the same things. Not uniformity, but conformity. We're trying to conform our lives and who we are to Jesus Christ and to what He asks us to do in the Word of God. I don't, wanna, I don't want a home defined by me, is what I'm saying, or anybody else. I want it defined by God. But let me again reiterate, I am not a parenting expert. You know me, so you know that I'm not. And, and I'm just a fellow soldier in the fight in the middle of this parenting thing. But I am a person who believes that the Bible is the absolute best parenting book there is in the world. There is nothing better. And I'm determined, and how I see it, I'm determined to follow the Bible as best I know how, and then just leave the results to the Lord and pray like crazy. And... And, uh, and let God do His work. But then this morning I showed uh, a study to you that really puts into perspective the reason that I think we need to be vigilant on this as parents, as moms and dads, and anybody inside of a family. And tonight we're not just going to address moms and dads. I think there's some of the points tonight really take into consideration all the people in the family. So, but this, this study is maybe the most interesting study I have ever seen in any, in any field, and I wanted to show it to you again tonight as we set the stage for this, uh, this idea of Heaven's Kitchen. 
Someone called this the Harvard prophecy because a man named Dr. Carl Zimmerman, who was a Harvard professor of sociology back in 1947, wrote his magnum opus, his book on the family and civilization, which is what it's called. And he had spent years and years and years studying this subject. He's not a, he wasn't a religious man. And he studied all the major civilizations throughout history. Uh, Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Greek, Western civilizations, all these. And he noticed a pattern. And he saw that the, it was the, the downfall of these societies were in direct relation to their disregard for God's ideal family model. Those nations, those cultures started with a family model that looked very biblical. But then over time, you could see the demise of the family, and then you would see the demise of a culture. He gave eight predictors of a civilization's demise. I'm going to read them for you quickly here again tonight, so just so that we can hear them again, and some of you for the first time. So here are his eight predictors of a civilization's demise that he saw in history. By the way, he was ostracized for this, from his own, his own people. Um, but here's what he said. Number one, marriage loses its sacredness. This is a predictor. As it is frequently broken by divorce. Such divorces do not consist of guilty parties, but simply two people who wish to terminate a relationship. We call that no-fault divorce. Number two, the traditional meaning of marriage is lost. Alternate forms of marriage arise and individualized marriage contracts are advocated. Pseudo-intellectuals begin to theorize that in order to save marriage, its form must be changed to a less strict, looser, more companionate structure. Number three, the feminist movement abounds. Women lose their inclination for childbearing and rearing, and the birth rate decreases. Number four, there is an increased public disrespect for parents, parenthood, and authority in general, so that the parenthood uh, becomes harder for those who still try to rear children. Number five, there is an increase in juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Number six, the hostility of pseudo-intellectuals toward the traditional family soon spreads to the common people sealing the doom for the society. Number seven, there is an increased acceptance of adultery. And number eight, there is a tolerance for and spread of sexual perversions of all kinds, especially homosexuality, but including others such as rape and incest. This generally marks the final stage of societal disintegration. It is, to me, this is so prophetic. 1947, this man wrote this, after studying all these civilizations. I can't believe how prophetic it really was. And it all began with going against God's design for the family. Now again, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to scare anybody. But I have a genuine concern. I have a concern about the world that my children are growing up in, about the world they're living in and they're going to face. But as I mentioned this morning, let's remember this. God's people are no strangers to going against the flow. This has happened before. There's always been God's people in that, and we'll continue to move on. And we'll continue to do what we know is right, despite, no matter what culture does. But this is why, though, that we need strong Christian homes. We need strong uh, homes that have built a God, a heaven culture uh, in the home. It's not time for us to sit back and let the culture happen to us. It's time for us to happen to the culture. It's time to create those, our own culture. 
And let me just remind us also that cultures, again, if we're going to create a culture, whether it's in a business or anywhere else, if you're trying to create some kind of a culture, they say that there's, you, you create a culture two ways, either by intent or apathy. The point is that there's a culture already in your home. There's a culture already in the business, wherever it may be. And either we're going to make it happen, if we're going to do all that we can to make a culture that we want, that we, God wants, or we're just going to let it happen. So, there already is a culture in my home. I need to make sure that that culture is conforming to God's ways, not my own. Not a blog, not what some person, expert says, not a book, but what, and not my own parents, or not my default mode, or factory settings, you know, that I have, but what God says. And that's the idea behind tonight. And, um, and also, I want to, again, mention that some of these principles aren't just for parents, okay? So these are for spouses here tonight. These are for kids. And these are for anyone who belongs to a family. Um, so I gave four principles this morning, and I'll do the same tonight. Uh, and I've tried to do it in a memorable way by using common kitchen tools to kind of help it stick in our minds. Let me just review real fast. I'm just going to read through the first four this morning. We need homes that are, number one, a crockpot of teaching. A crockpot of teaching. They're not going to be on uh, up there, but a crockpot of teaching, a home that takes the long-range view of teaching the Word of God. Then number two, we need homes of, that have a stove t- are like a stovetop of discipline, where we aren't afraid to turn up the heat uh, of discipline for discipleship for our children. And then number three, a cheese cutter of consistency. We, we need homes where the leadership of those homes are consistent, they are predictable, and they are organized. And then number four, a coffee pot of warmth. We need homes where the aroma and the taste of genuine love just permeates through the home and then settles all those anxious hearts that are asking, do you love me, mom and dad? Do you love me? Uh, Those are the things we talked about this morning, and here is number five tonight. Number five, a blender of relationships. A blender of relationships. We need homes that are blenders of relationships. A home where we bump into each other, but we learn to blend into something better instead of getting worse. Now, um, this idea of blenders, let's think about it for a minute. I really love smoothies. I enjoy making a smoothie. But when you make a smoothie, each ingredient has a role to play. But each one of those ingredients has to sacrifice. They have to be willing to be broken and to be blended with every, everything else for the greater good. And it's that way in our homes, too. When each individual plays their role and is willing to sacrifice, then we have a family that is a better family. And I guess you could almost call it a blended family in that sense. We're a blended family. Take a look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. I just want to take a look at this passage, a very popular passage about parenting and about families in general. Colossians 3, verses 18 to 21, wives... Submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, when I read this passage... And when I was going through it this time as I was studying, I just kind of gathered a lot to begin this 
uh, series, I just kind of gathered just as many of the parenting verses that I could and just kind of went through them. And when I was reading this one again, I, I had two observations that I want to share with you. So two Colossians 3 observations. Number one is that God recognizes roles in the home. This is not a human invention. God recognizes roles in a home. This is not some human invention. Notice how God defines these roles. Wives to husbands. Husbands to wives. Children to parents. Fathers to children. These are relational roles. And then it's not just here in Colossians, but also over in Titus chapter 2, he names these roles. He calls them by a name. He gives them a definition. Aged men, aged women, he calls them. Young women, young men. He defines it. You know, Jesus also reminded us of roles in a home when he said, God created them, male and female created he them. God created them, equal, male and female, equal, but different, different roles. Now, if you study the home in the Bible, you can't escape clearly defined roles in a home. And typically, you see very clear strengths, actually, in males and females that are suited for those roles. God kind of physiologically built special things, typically in guys and gals, to kind of fit those roles. Not that you don't, there isn't overlap. There absolutely is overlap. But typically, the strengths of a male and female are geared toward their certain role. Now, I wanna, I'm just making a point of this. This is not a huge surprise, I don't think, but I do want to just make a point of this tonight because we live in a time that wants to remove biblical roles in a home. We, we want to erase that from our minds. Men want to be women. Women want to be men. We got the LGBTQ, they, they want to. They don't, want, they don't even want gender terminology. Let's not even call anybody by any of these names. And even, even not with that, but even with just children in the home, they would like to see the roles erased too, and others would. Kids want to rule the house, and parents want to escape responsibility. So no one has really any roles. No roles, no rules. That's a good way to live, they think. But the problem is this role erasing is detrimental to a home and the society. And I think we saw that in that study there. There are just certain designs of God that are better left intact, no matter how much culture keeps progressing forward. And I think, as Christians, I think as we as people who want to have a home that has a God-defined culture, heaven's kitchen, if you will, we want to have heaven define our home, then we need to stay steady with these things and this, this example of a home that's beautiful and the beauty of doing things God's way so that we can really then have something to, to offer to people who are there in, in time of need and need a change, need that, that something of value in their life. Now, I want to say this. Virtually every study that has ever been done show that children do better in every area, literacy, graduation, emotional health, sexual development, etc., 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 with a married father and mother in the home. And it's not just children that do better. The spouses are happier in a thriving marriage of a man and a woman. Everything works better when we cooperate. 
The point is, everything works better when we cooperate with God's order and design. Homes need husbands who work at being a good husband. That's what they're supposed to work on, be a good husband. Homes need wives who work at being a good wife, and homes need children who work at being obedient, being a a child that there ought to be for their parents. Homes work better. They need parents who work hard at at their role. And notice one more thing I want to give to you about Colossians 3, 18 to 21 there. The second observation, that is that God requires responsibility. It's not about what you get, it's about what you give according to those verses. The roles are not about, um, it's not about something you get, it's about something you give, it's about work. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey. Fathers, provoke not and uh, your children to anger. See, this is another beauty of, of God's idea of the home. There is no place like home on earth. There is no place like a little, like a home to teach us to embrace our place in life, to me, for me to just embrace who I am and my place in life and then lay down my selfishness and learn how to relate to other people. There's just no place like it. You're bumping into each other. You're always, always issues. You're always trying to figure out who you are, what's going on, who they are, where I fit. And there's no place like home to help us in this area. We bump into each other. We're forced to blend, blend with each other instead of staying rigid. Now, we, we usually do this kicking and screaming, but it's doing a good work in us. You know, being in a family makes me a better person. It forces me to think of someone else beside my, myself. It forces me to do what I'd rather not do. It forces me to think in terms of teamwork, and, and it forces me to use people skills. Here's the point on all this. Home relationships done God's way simply make people better people. Home relationships done God's way simply make people better people. It just does. And by the way, one of the huge downsides of a wealthy nation, let me just throw this in here for you. One of the huge downsides of a wealthy nation like we have is children who grow up without a sense of responsibility and purpose. In the old days, kids used to be needed. They would have children, you were needed on the farm. We need you to get out here and work the farm. But now, children are optional. And often, people want children only to fulfill a personal longing that they have. And that's the only reason. And that longing itself to have a child is not wrong. But it's not the reason for human beings. The danger is that parents give them everything they want and don't require anything from them. And therefore, that child then grows up not feeling needed. They don't feel like they have a purpose. And many teenagers eventually feel purposeless because they don't offer anything to the family. Why do they need me here? I'm only a taker, not a giver. It's so good for our minds, it's so good for our hearts to be a giver. And, um, And that's what the home does, and that's what the home should be doing. So really, tonight, it's only to our harm if we ignore biblical roles and responsibilities. And by the way, that's why I have my kids go get me my slippers and go get me my coffee and give me a back rub. I just want them to feel needed, okay? That's all that really is. It's about them, not me, okay? 
All right, and then number six, our homes, I think, should have a culture like this, a garbage disposal of forgiveness. A garbage disposal of forgiveness where we get rid of each other's sins. 1 Peter 4.8 is a wonderful verse in a sense. And above all things, have fervent charity or love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. When it comes to a heaven-filled home, in a heaven-defined home, I think God wants us. I think God wants us to see that this is a, a must. Now, a couple times, we've had to clear out a pipe blockage at our house. Okay, so we have uh, the house that sits up. You know, it's the uh, manufactured home, and so there's all this space underneath. It's not a lot of space, but there's some space underneath, and there's pipes running under there. And a couple times now, we've had blockage from our sink to where all the yucky stuff is supposed to go. And there's somewhere in that pipe underneath the house with all its turns and all that. And several years ago, when I first, I had to go under there and go do it, and it was a nasty job. Somewhere there's going to be a lot of nasty and a lot of yucky. So I went where I needed to go and cut the pipe and did all that. I was gross, and there was dead animals down there and everything. And... Um, and I'm already claustrophobic. I didn't like it at all. But I, so I grabbed some of my kids and said, you're staying here with me. I need, comp- I need company. So, you know, I had some of them with me. And uh, so I'm under there doing that. But as soon as I cut through the pipe and found where the blockage was, cleared it out, I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't know how forceful everything was going to come flowing out. So I was shoving, and, and then the dam broke. And came busting out, and this has, been, this has been sitting in there for quite a while. This was gross. As soon as I did that, my, the guy, the, my sons that were with me busted out of the, underneath the house. I mean, they just, ran, just crawled and then just ran out of the house, and I was left all alone under there. So a few months ago when this happened again, I was making, I'm, they're, they're, now I have men in my house. They're old enough. I have men in my house. They can go do this job. And so it was wonderful. I sat back on a chair. I, I drank iced tea. I think I literally did actually drink iced tea. And I sent Aaron under there, and I said, here, here's, here's a phone. You can have your phone for FaceTime. I'll FaceTime you, and you just go under there, and I'll tell you where to cut, and I'll tell you what to do, and then it's all on you, buddy. I've forgiven them for running away from me, but, uh, but I still going to make, I, I get even, though. I don't just forgive. But it's... The point is here, it's a mess. It's horrible. It's a huge issue, and I hate doing it, uh, getting under there and trying to clear a blockage in a pipe, and then it backs up into the sink, and then there's a stink in the sink, and it gets worse and worse and worse until it's resolved. If we just let it go, it would just, it would just be horrific in our home, but that's how it is in our homes. You've got to get, we have to get things clear between each other. We can't let all these things back up. We can't let things stay backed up for long or else there will be a stink in our sinks. You know, family fights were a problem in the Bible from the very beginning. Cain killed his brother Abel. Jacob 
And Esau, they had issues. Joseph and his brothers, they had issues. And there's more. In the Bible, you see bad marital decisions and issues. You see fights and you see problems in, in marriages. The point is, families clash sometimes. Husbands and wives, kids and parents, we clash. So who do we look for for the example on how to treat family issues and how to deal with all these? Well, the greatest parent of all is who we should look to. That's God himself. He creates with us, his children, a culture of forgiveness. Don't you feel that? That culture of forgiveness that you could go to God and get things clear? There's two truths about God the Father here. Number one is this. God is unafraid to deal openly and honestly about sin. It's one thing we know about God. He's not afraid to poke us. He's not afraid to deal with the sin. He does not sweep things under the rug. No. Sin is too big of a deal for him to just let it go. But number two, God is unfailingly willing to cover the sin, to get rid of the sin. 1 John chapter 1, we know these verses, but this is the culture that God has set for us as Christians, as his children. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and everything's great if we're walking in the light. Everything's open, honest. There's no sin between anybody and me, me and God, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Verse 8, and if we say we have no sin, though, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, and here's how he deals with it. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and bring us back into fellowship with him. So notice, as we walk in the light, there's a fellowship. But sin is the thing that separates. Sin breaks that and needs to be dealt with. It's got to be dealt with. We don't sweep sin under the rug. How do we do that then? With God, we got to bring it to Him. We confess it and we get His forgiveness. And then He he cleanses it and makes it all good. And that, that pipe is clear. And that's how it works with God. And we need, I think, to set up that kind of a culture in our home. We need to teach our families how to resolve things this way as well. This is the culture that we need to create. Love covers sin. Love covers sin. Love covers sin. We got to be loving. We have to be courageous to deal with real issues wisely and graciously and gently, but, uh, but we need to deal with it in the right way and openly. I don't do this as often as I should, but there have been times where I have had to go to my wife and ask for forgiveness for something I've done to hurt her. And she's been in a place where she has to forgive me. And I'm grateful that she does, and I'm grateful that she helps all of us, uh, especially keep things, uh, keep things out there so we can deal with them openly and honestly, and then she will forgive. I've had to go to, I've had to do the same with my children. Again, not nearly as often probably as I should, but you know when somebody comes to you and they've sinned against you and they may say something, boy, that just helps clear, clear the slate. Family's day is filled with so much back and forth that there's going to be so many chances to forgive and, and ask for forgiveness. You know, just about the most powerful words in a home are these words right here, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? I like uh, 
what uh, the Ezos say in Growing Kids God's Way. They say, when you need to ask for forgiveness from somebody, especially in your family, don't say the words, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't use those words because then you're still in the driver's seat. You put, you put, you're still in control of the conversation. Rather use these words, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Put it, give them control. Be humble. It humbly gives over the control. Every family member, though, this is what we're talking about tonight. Every family member has a part in this. To create a culture of forgiveness. Create a culture of love covers sin. I'm willing to cover sin, but we've got we to gotta bring it to the surface. It, it, uh, just like our Father has for us. And then speaking of sin, here's another culture to create. Number seven, a freezer of protection. A freezer of protection where each heart is guarded from the elements that would spoil each heart is guarded from the elements that was spoiled. You know, there's nothing like, uh, for me, Ezekiel bread in the morning. I, I eat it with Ben's honey. You know, Ben Burnett, here's honey. I just spread that on there. And I eat that every morning. Now, the problem with Ezekiel bread, all those little things in there are natural, and so it goes bad really fast. And it gets moldy. Pesky mold is disgusting. And it, it always creeps in. So what do you do? to help that. Well, you pop that thing in the freezer, and now it keeps the mold away. Sin is like mold. It's always trying to corrupt me. It's always trying to corrupt my wife. It's always trying to corrupt my children. It's always trying to corrupt our family. Husband, wife, dad, mom, brother, sister, it's trying to corrupt us. But we then can work hard at creating this culture of protection from that. All those things that want to creep in. When I was going through these scriptures on protecting the family, um, I saw, I think, two ways to create that freezer culture. Two ways to ensure our homes are preservation boxes, if you will. And I love that word preservation. It's preserving. It's preserving. And that's, the, the Bible uses that word. Number one, fill our homes with words of life. Or we could say the wisdom of life there. We've got to fill our homes with good things, especially the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is, is contained in the words of God. Proverbs 2 lays out the, that preserving power. Let me show you some of these verses here. Proverbs 2, verse 10, when wisdom entereth into thine heart, by the way, all of Proverbs chapter 2 is amazing on this, when wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, by the way, I'm going to pull back one more time on this, this passage right here, starting in Chapter one or uh, chapter two, verse one, is a father talking to his son here. Son, if you will hear me, if you will hear these instructions, and then it goes on and on and on. So this really is very family oriented. Then, son, when wisdom then entereth into your heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto your soul, discretion shall preserve thee. Understanding will keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh forward things. The preservation power is in that wisdom of God, the words of God that are taken to heart, that are placed deep down in the heart. Chapter 4, verse 6, Proverbs 4, 6, forsake her not, wisdom, and she shall preserve thee. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee, son. Love her, that wisdom, and she will keep thee. And then over in the psalm, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto. According to thy word, 
With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It has to be in the heart, and there has to be wisdom there. It's really uh, help trying to preserve our homes, giving this culture here of, of preservation in our homes is really about helping our children see the beauty of the wisdom of God and getting that into their hearts. How do we help them take wisdom to heart? Well, here's some thoughts I have. Since wisdom is about knowledge, is, or excuse me, is more than knowledge, it's about application of truth, then it helps when our children see it, they see the Word of God, they see the wisdom of God in our actions. They have to see it. They're going to take it more to heart if they see it, not just hear it. In other words, we're walking the talk. We can't just preach it. we got to live it. They need to see a clean life. If we're telling them they need to live a clean life, we got to live a clean life. Uh, they'll want, and then they'll want to maybe hide that in their hearts. They're still going to make their own choice. It's all up to them to make their own choice. But we trust God's Word to continue doing the working. I, um, I have to give some honor right now here to my mom. As I was thinking about this in particular, you know, my mom, I saw her use the Word of God. I saw her use the Word of God a lot. She read the Word. She loved the Word. All of that. But it wasn't just her reading or it wasn't just her teaching to us or it wasn't just her singing the Word of God to us or all the things, different things that she did. It really was that the the fact that the Word of God was real inside her. She was really, truly drawing strength from the Word of God. It was actually, it was not just words on a page. It was actually impacting how she lived. It was impacting her life. It was real. The Word of God was her strength. And on her gravestone, we put the verse, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, obeying God to her wasn't a drudgery. It was a joy for her because she really saw so much joy in the Scriptures. And when, I, when you see that, when you see that kind of displayed before you, you kind of are drawn to that. She made the wisdom of God something that I wanted for myself, something that I wanted to take to heart. And now in my, in my life, how many times does a song that she sang from come back to me, or, or a, a verse that she gave me, or something that she had me memorize, or some words, scripture related that she gave to me. I'm going to tell you, the word and the wisdom of God, when I, when I evaluate what she's done in, in my own life, and the impact she had, the word and the wisdom of God has helped preserve me from so many heartaches, and I'm so thankful for somebody who took the time and took the effort to actually live this thing out. Once, once the word is in the heart, though, and we're and we give that, that gift of living it and giving it, then once that word is in the heart, the Bible tells us it doesn't stop working. The Bible is alive and active. The word of God does not stop working. It will continue working and continue working and continue working and continue working, no matter how hard, not how hard that kid or that person fights against it, deep down in the heart, it's still working, 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 it's still working. It's alive, it's active. That's why when I write uh, the devotions from Leading from the Couch, the tagline that I use is family devotions that work. I'm not talking about them actually working. I'm 
in, in that moment. I'm talking about them actually doing a work for a long period because you're reading the Word of God. I pray and I want that, that that living Word and active Word of God will just continue in the hearts of my kids and in their hearts. That's the kind of environment I want. Now, the, the Word of God has power, but let me, let me just remind us we have to give it the chance to work. So here, real quick, so do these things. These, these are some things to help it work. Memorize it, meditate, normalize it. Normalize it. What I mean by that is you're going throughout your day, let's just bring up a passage of Scripture about this particular issue. We're going to normalize Scripture. We're not going to make it only something we do on Sunday, but it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Use it wherever you can to normalize Scripture. Leverage Scripture. You need to have a word of discipline, then we got to bring in a discipline verse. Help them see that God is the one who guides this. Leverage the Scripture. Use the Scripture and then pray Scripture, explain Scripture, write Scripture to them in notes, sing Scripture, post Scripture, refer to Scripture in casual conversation, and most of all, follow Scripture. As a parent, I'm counting on the power of God's Word to continue teaching my children long after my voice is gone. So, here's what I want to encourage. Dad, mom, grandfather, grandmother, this is brother, sister, this is for anybody. Become the Scripture person in your home. Become the Scripture person. Become the Scripture person that, that just creates that culture all around you. The people are going to remember, and you'll leave a legacy that lasts. And not, it's not just filling it with the good and with wisdom, but it's number two, it's emptying our homes of the elements of death. If we're going to make sure that we have preservation for our children, we have to empty our homes of some things Really quickly here, remember the Rechabites in Jeremiah chapter 35. Uh, We don't have time to go through their whole story, but Jeremiah 35 says, uh, verse 8, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he hath charged us to drink no wine all our days. We, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in. Neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. Got nothing. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. This man, Jonadab, created a culture. It was uncomparably uh, amazing because it was, there was so much self-denial. But how did, how did he pass that on? The, the next generation would take on that self-denial. They continued his legacy even when he was dead. And God says, look at this family. He uses this family as an example to his people. He said, look at them. They have, they have, taken, on, they have taken on all this self-denial because their dad told them. He created this culture. And they took on that. But you people, my own people, God says, you won't even listen to me and do what I say. Now, God doesn't call everyone to have these exact standards that Jonadab did, but there are always certain things he will want our families to abstain from. Every, all of us. Here's my question. Can we stand up in our homes as parents? Can we stand up? Are we bold enough? Are we courageous enough to make strong convictions, to say, no, we don't do this. No, we don't do this. There are things that we'll just not, will not be allowed in this home. And I think we have to be intentional about finding those things and then making it happen. By the way, it's not just a father's job as we see Jonadab doing it or consider Job who prayed for his family. But in Titus chapter 2, it says to the, 
young women to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, it says. Keepers at home. The word keepers at home literally means guard at home. Guard at home. God calls mothers here to be a guard. That's why maybe, that's why they say don't mess with mama bear. Moms are often the first ones to recognize the danger that's coming in to the heart of someone in the home, whether it's through their children or even through their husband. My wife, man, she, she'll know my feelings before I know my own feelings, and that is the absolute truth. She, she can see things, and she's a guard, and that's what God has given her. But truly, every family member, though, has a part in this, mom, dad, and everybody, to guard the home from things that would come in and spoil, and that mold would take over. It's hard work, and it requires constant inspection. But lastly, number four, our home should be a dining table of laughter where there is fun and we absolutely just enjoy each other. And I think this is very biblical. You know, uh, God loves feasts. It's very clear from the Bible that God loves feasts. (laughs) <laughs> he commanded seven regular feasts for the, for the families of Israel. He wanted all the families to get together and do their thing, and all these different feasts throughout the year. Feasts promote great memories, family, unity, communication, joy. It promotes all those things in a home. Psalm 133, verse 1, how, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, brothers, to dwell together in unity. Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There is a time to laugh. There's a time to stop laughing. There's a time to stop laughing, but there's a time to laugh. There's a time to just have a good time at home. I've noticed that kids love to see their parents laugh. My kids love to see us laugh and have a great time. It's, it's a sign, laughing and enjoy is a sign that everything's good, everything's okay. And the dining table is one of the places I love, and I will miss that when they all leave me. But it's where we catch up, it's where we laugh, it's where we unite. You know, doing family is so much business. You're going here, you're doing this, you got to do this, this is your responsibility, everybody do this. So much business involved that we just need to take a step back and just have times of laughter and fun. And some people are great at this. Some of you are just probably way better than I am at doing this, but it's hard work for some (laughs) to just have fun. It's hard work to have fun, but it's worth all the effort. It's kind of like that Mary and Martha thing, you know. Both are needed, but we need to just... Sometimes sit down and enjoy. Uh, a couple years ago, I was reading about a, fam- a family book, and this pastor asked this question that, re- that really shook me. He just said a simple question, do you enjoy your family? Do you enjoy your children? Do you enjoy your wife? Do you just enjoy them? It's so simple, and the answer was yes, but... I really hadn't been thinking about it in exactly that way. It's my joy to serve God, and it's my joy to serve my wife. It's my joy to serve my family. That's not what he's saying. It's my joy to try to do this job the best I can, but that's not what he's saying. It's my joy to help them in their life moments, but that's not what he's saying. Are you just, can you just sit back and enjoy it? 
and enjoy being with in the same room and just enjoy having fun? How do we bring a home of life and laughter and joy? Uh, The Bible tells us that true deep down joy comes as a fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, the more we invite the Holy Spirit into our home, the more joy we get. So here are two things real fast as we close here tonight. Number one, plant spiritual seed. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know these verses describe the ideal life and home? Think about that. If, that. if your home was filled with those things right there, I love that idea. I sometimes, literally, I'll look at those words and I'll say, man, that's what I want my life to be. That's the ideal life that I want. That's the ideal home that I want. I want love. I want joy. I want peace. That's just what I want. I want that's so badly, Lord. And that's why he put that list in there, because everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. And he says, here's how it comes to you, through planting seeds of the Spirit. You sow to the Spirit, and this is what you'll reap. So someone, to get these things, someone had to plant those things. Somebody had to do the work to plant it. Somebody had to water spiritual things. Somebody has to tend the spiritual things. Somebody has to keep the unspiritual weeds out. And then that tree will grow, and then love will happen. Then joy will happen then peace will happen. It's a focus on the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual endeavor. Joy is the fruit of a spiritual tree that has been cultivated. When our home is aimed God's way, then God says you'll have the joy. It'll just come. You don't get joy by seeking joy. You get joy by seeking the Spirit. And then, number two, is you plan for peace. Notice Proverbs 12, 20, deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. A counselor of peace, a counselor of peace is one who plans and strategizes for peace, which if you do that, it brings joy. That's what brings joy. Here's what this is saying. Joy is not something that comes accidentally. It is planned for. It is strategized for. We have to put the phone down. (laughs) We have to put the screens down. We have to turn some things off. We have to have dinner together. We have to invest time, lots of time, listening and hearing. We have to focus on our words and what we're saying and how we're drawing things out. If we want joy and happiness, then it's up to us. If I want joy, it's up to me. If you want joy, it's up to you. It's up to you if you want joy, to have joy. And with this, I heard of one pastor at a child dedication service. He gave all of the people who were bringing a child to be dedicated, he gave them all a jar of 936 pennies to every family. This represented the amount of weeks that that family had with that child from birth to the age 18. And I know that's not the end of parenting at age 18, but it's a visual, and it helps remember or helps us to number our days, and that's what he was hoping that they would, and to take out one penny, he said, every week and watch it go down. Well, she, this mom, one mom took it to heart, and she took it home, and she was doing that. 
She said, but then I got so depressed because already my child was like a year and a half, so I had to take out a bunch of pennies, and I looked at all the time I lost, and then as I was taking them more, I was just getting so discouraged. Oh, look at all the time I've lost. I only got this much left, and I'm stressing out. I only got this much time left. It was causing a lot of stress, and so she said, what I did, I made a twist to it. I put another jar right next to it, and I started taking them out of that jar and putting them into this jar so that I could then see the investment that I'm making in the future. And the, the thing that I'm trying to do for their life. And that's what I hope that these messages this morning, tonight, kind of do for us. I, I, I just want them to remind us of this, that we're not losing time. We're investing in time. We're investing in people. We're doing all that we can to just do this for the glory of God. Nobody here is perfect. Everybody's going to mess up royally like I have so much. We just trust God and we keep going. That's not an excuse to stop. It's just motivation to keep going. So let's all bow our heads tonight, if you would, please.